Hello, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast. And we hope this message will help you grow in your walk with Christ. And if you'd like to support this ministry, you can do so by visiting theroadfc.org and click on the giving link. Well, we are uh, picking up on our series called Finding Jesus in Genesis. We began this series before Advent. We did, I think, three weeks, and it seemed to be resonating a lot with people in our community, so I decided to continue it here in the new year. Um, And so what we're doing in this series, Finding Jesus in Genesis, is we're really flexing our interpretive muscles uh, to learn to read the Bible in the light of Christ. Uh, This tradition, this way of reading the Bible, was actually handed down by Jesus himself to his disciples on the Emmaus Road. Uh, It was later picked up by the apostles and early church fathers and mothers. Um, And this tradition was to read all of the scriptures with Christ as the interpretive center. Uh, If you just kind of read the Bible and want to pull out anything that you would like to pull out, uh, you can kind of get the Bible to support pretty much any point of view that you want. Uh, And so you need an anchor, and that anchor is Jesus. That interpretive anchor is Jesus. Uh, And so that's what it means, in fact, to read the Bible as Christians, is to read it not as a textbook for information about God, nor as a rule book for our lives, but to read the Bible as a Christian is to read it as a unified story with Jesus right at the center. And of course, what that means then is we can look at any of the scriptures and we can see that Jesus is kind of prefigured. We can see that Jesus is predicted. We can see that Jesus is foreshadowed. uh, Or we can see ways in which Jesus is active right there. Uh, What this this means is to say that the Bible does not bear witness to itself, but the Bible bears witness to the living word who is Jesus Christ. And... uh, So this means that we can expect to find Jesus throughout uh, the scriptures, even in the Old Testament. Uh, So since we were looking at this before Advent, let me jog your memory just a little bit. Uh, We found Jesus in the very first verses of the Bible where we found Jesus or the Word of God as the creative agent in all of creation. Uh, That that Jesus is the creator. Uh, We also found Jesus in the story of Adam and Eve in the proto-evangelium. How many of you remember that term from before Advent? Yeah, that was a fun word that we learned. Um, And I won't give you any more uh, definition about that. If that is of interest to you, you can go back and listen to it, as all of these are filmed and recorded, and everything I do up here is just forever cataloged on the internet. (sighs) Right? Okay, so you can find that. Uh, We also found Jesus in the Noah story as the vessel of salvation that carries us from old creation into new creation. And uh, we haven't made any of this up on our own. This is none of our just best ideas. This is actually, in each case, early biblical writers saw Jesus in these texts and later wrote about it. Um, And so what we're really doing, basically, is paying close enough attention to the Bible to see how the Bible bears witness to Jesus. Amen? Amen. So that's what we're up to. Um, And so before we read this morning's text, I want to set the scene. I want to give you kind of a little bit of uh, kind of leading up to, because if I just read the text completely out of context, it wouldn't make any sense. Uh, So here's the, here, let me set the scene for our story in Genesis this morning. 
Um, You'll notice right away after I read it that this morning's passage features one of the best known figures in all of the Bible, and that figure is Abram, also known as Abraham. This morning, if I say Abram or Abraham, I'm using them interchangeably. They're the same guy. Okay, so understand that. So it features one of the most prominent figures in all the scriptures, which is Abraham. Now, this story in the Bible, he's still Abram. He hasn't yet been named to Abraham. Uh, But at this story point of the story, he has been called by God to leave his home country to seek a land that will be revealed to him. And with that instruction came a promise that Abram will find will be made into a great nation and will inherit a, a land. Now, Abram, at this point, has traveled from place to place and found a home, quote, this is awesome, quote, near an oak grove that belonged to Mamre the Amorite. This is where Abraham is living, near an oak grove that belongs to somebody else, okay? (laughs) Isn't that great? So he's kind of a nomad. He's finding himself all the different places. Um, And this is where he's in there. He's near the oak grove when he learns that his nephew Lot has been captured, And all of his possessions have been taken. So what Abram does in response is he mobilizes 318 men to come against the army that had taken his nephew. And in fact, Abraham finds victory. This is where our passage picks up. Isn't this exciting? Okay. All right. So it's found in Genesis chapter 14. Uh, Genesis chapter 14. I want to read just a few verses. uh, Verse 17 through verse 20. And uh, this morning I'll be reading from the New Living Translation. So uh, Genesis 14, beginning with verse 17, says this. After Abram returned from his victory over Kedor Lamor, if you wonder what pastors do all week, is learn how to say stuff like that. Uh, So he found victory over uh, Kay and all of his allies. Uh, And then the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. And then Melchizedek, the king of Salem, and the priests of the Most High God brought Abram some bread and wine. Now Melchizedek blessed Abram with this blessing. Blessed be Abram by the Most High God, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has defeated your enemies for you. Then Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of all the goods that he had recovered. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now, there's a lot that we could explore in Abraham's story, which we're going to do next week. This week, I want to look and focus on a lesser-known figure in history, and that is Melchizedek. We know almost nothing about Melchizedek. He appears only three times in the entire Bible. This passage, this short little kind of passage in Genesis, one verse of one psalm in the Old Testament, and then in the New Testament book of Hebrews. That's it. But nevertheless, let's see if we can find Jesus in the story of Melchizedek. There are two markers in this uh, story that the writer or the storyteller of Genesis gives that sets Melchizedek apart and makes him stand out in this passage. And those two markers are the blessing and the tenth or the tithe. Two markers that make Melchizedek stand out in this passage, the blessing and the tithe. So after gaining victory and securing his nephew Lot, this strange figure, Melchizedek, appears before Abraham and offers him bread and wine and then pronounces a blessing. Now, Abraham is one of the primary figures in all of Scripture, 
And usually what happens is the person of higher status gives a blessing to someone else. So the person giving the blessing is usually of higher status, higher social order. Uh, and I'm, I'm uncomfortable. I'm just as uncomfortable with all of that talk as you are. Uh, but let's live in the world as it's presented to us, which is those of higher social order are usually the person giving the blessing. The person of lower social order is the person receiving the blessing. Now, there are a couple of exceptions to this in scripture, but by and large, or generally speaking, that is the case. So if a person is of higher status, higher social position, etc., they offer the blessing. But in this passage, Melchizedek offers a blessing to Abraham, which essentially sets this unknown figure, Melchizedek, over and above one of the heroes of Scripture, Abraham. And this should strike us as odd. It should strike us as out of place, kind of given the heroic status of Abraham. So Melchizedek, this unknown figure, gives a blessing to this heroic figure, Abraham. Now, in response to the blessing, Abraham offers a tenth of all that he had kind of gained from uh, this battle, right? So of his spoils, he offers a tenth. Now, in other translations, and I read, usually when we're in the Old Testament, I usually read from the New Living Translation. It's just a little easier when it gets to Old Testament stuff. Uh, but mostly, most translations will just translate this with a more familiar word, which is tithe, right? Tithe, okay? So in response to receiving the blessing, Abraham offers a tithe. This is the first time that tithe appears in the Bible. And the word tithe literally means tenth, okay? Tithe and tenth are the same word. They mean the same thing. So, a tithe, so to tithe is to give a tenth of your wealth. Now, what the modern church has done is we've come to understand that there's a good standard of generosity is to give 10% or a tithe of your income to support the local church. This sermon is not about that. We're finding Jesus, but it's here and it's important. Let me talk just a moment about it. To tithe is the first a sign of trust in God to provide all of your needs with the remaining 90%. So to tithe is to trust in God. It also is an act of worship as you give to support the work of God's kingdom and to tithe develops a heart of generosity as you give away a portion of your income. A lot of people like to talk about being generous or like, like to talk about generosity, uh, but you can't, but, but there's something very tangible to connect it to generosity, which is in order to formulate a generous spirit, you have to be generous, <laughs> Right? Like you have to, it's something that your heart kind of follows your actions on. Now you can be prompted in your heart. You can, you can kind of be stirred toward that, but it's ultimately the action of physically giving something away and being generous that allows us to, to kind of in, envelop or develop a generous heart. And then also in the, as kind of the modern church has set it up, tithe to the local church empowers the mission of the church and funds the mission of the church to proclaim the good news of God. So in response to receiving a blessing, Abraham is compelled to give a tithe. And so there's blessings, and there's receiving tithes. These are priestly acts that are common. They're seen throughout the Old Testament. And this is, in fact, part of the roles and responsibilities of the priests from the tribe of Levi, 
the Levites are the priestly tribe, and so they go about their business, and part of their business is giving blessings and then receiving tithes. Not just for themselves, but for the temple and to kind of manage the tithes and all of that. But then out of their kind of priestly duties, they also make a living off of that tithe, right? And so this is just, the, this is how it's set up. And so it was a priestly thing to do. But here's the crazy thing about Melchizedek. Melchizedek does all of this before the tr priestly tribes of Israel were even a thing. Like, we're in the story of Abraham. Out of Abraham comes the promise that his descendants will be a great nation. That nation becomes Israel. Out of Israel, we have 12 tribes, of which one is a tribe of Levi, the priestly tribe. But we're not at that part of the story. We're way back here in the story. And we see blessing and receiving tithes. These priestly acts before there were even kind of the, this idea of priests, at least in Israel. Isn't Melchizedek fascinating? Okay, now turn to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews, uh, to set the scene a little bit, Hebrews, chapter, Hebrews as a whole is, uh, we don't know who the author is, so uh, scholars often refer to him as the preacher, uh, because Hebrews reads a lot like a sermon. And so we come to the point in the sermon, Hebrews chapter 7, uh, where all of a sudden this old, this, this like hardly known Old Testament figure shows up in the preacher's sermon. Uh, Hebrews chapter 7, beginning with verse 1. I'll read about 10 verses. This Melchizedek was king of the city of Salem and, so, and also a priest of the Most High God. And when Abraham was churning home after winning a great battle against the kings, Melchizedek met him and blessed him. Then Abraham took a tenth of all that he had captured in battle and gave it to Melchizedek. Now the name Melchizedek means king of justice. And the king of Salem means king of peace. There is no record of his father or his mother or any of his ancestors. There's no beginning or end to his life. He remains a priest forever, resembling the Son of God. Consider then how great this Melchizedek was. Even Abraham, the great patriarch of Israel, recognized this by giving him a tenth of what he had taken in battle. Now the law of Moses required that the priests, who are the descendants of Levi, must collect a tithe from the rest of the people of Israel, who are also descendants, by the way, of Abraham. But Melchizedek, who was not a descendant of Levi, in other words, he's not from the priestly tribe, but he still collected a tenth from Abraham and Melchizedek placed a blessing on Abraham and one who had already the one who had already received the promises of God and without question the person who has the power to give a blessing is greater than the one who is blessed the priests who collect tithes are men who die so Melchizedek is greater than they are because we are told that he lives on in addition we might even say that the levites the ones who, col who collect the tithe paid a tithe to Melchizedek when their ancestor Abraham paid a tithe to him. For although Levi wasn't born yet, the seed from which, he was, from which he came was in Abraham's body when Melchizedek collected the tithe from him. <laughs> this, is, this is like preacher talk. Right? Let's just kind of understand it for what it is. He's like, actually, it could be said that Levi paid a tithe to Melchizedek because Levi was already a seed in Abraham. That's as awkward as it sounds, by the way. If you're thinking, is that, does he mean what I think he means? I do mean what you think I mean, right? Okay, so then uh, go back a little bit further down. Let's see, verse 15. 
This change, which has been made very clear with a different priest who is like Melchizedek that has appeared, Jesus became a priest not by meeting the physical requirements of belonging to the tribe of Levi, but from the power of a life that cannot be, de be destroyed. And the psalmist pointed this out when he prophesied, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Let's see if we can make some sense out of all this. The preacher, that is the, Hebrew, the, the writer of Hebrews. So when I say the preacher, that's who I mean, the writer of Hebrews. The preacher is not a historical critic. He most likely is not concerned with a kind of historical critical analysis of Melchizedek's origins like maybe a modern reader might be, right? Uh, like a modern reader, we would come to this and we'd, be, we'd really want to know, like, where's Melchizedek from and this, and we'd, wanna, we'd be really interested in sort of the historical critical approach to understanding just who is this Melchizedek. Uh, but the preacher is not that interested in that. Uh, the preacher is actually working from um, what we'll call a catalog of Melchizedek lore, <laughs> Uh, what I mean by that is scholars believe that there's actually a homiletical Melchizedek. Uh, that's not to say that Melchizedek wasn't a real historical figure. I believe that he was. But because the details of his life were pretty skim, uh, detail, like preachers felt free to fill in the details of his life as they saw fit. And so there kind of became a common understanding of the homiletical Melchizedek. Uh, if that makes sense. In other words, the preacher was working from kind of commonly held assumptions about Melchizedek. Now, before you get too worked up about this, we do this all the time. Uh, in fact, we do this with the three wise men of Christmas, right? We, we know almost nothing about the three magi, the three wise men, uh, but we, and when I say we, I mostly mean preachers, right? Uh, we like to, because we don't know much about them, we like to make up whole backstories. We give them names. We do all kinds of stuff. And so there is, to this day, kind of homiletical three kings, right? It's like there's sort of commonly held assumptions that are not necessarily verifiable. They may or may not be true, but they're kind of commonly held. So there's a lore surrounding the three kings. So we do this. And this was, in fact, true for Melchizedek. So preachers of the time kind of were operating from a common set of understandings of the homiletical Melchizedek. And so what is this Melchizedek lore? Well, it's actually right here in the passage. The preacher says, the name Melchizedek means king of justice. Oh, and by the way, he's also the king of Salem, which means king of peace. Salem, coming from Shalom, or derived from Shalom. And so that makes sense, right? And so there's this person who is the king of justice, and he's from this place that means the king of peace. And also Melchizedek is timeless. Uh, now, should we read this passage and think that Melchizedek never died or was never born? Uh, of course not, right? We should assume that there was a historical Melchizedek that was born to a mom and dad and then later died. That's what we should assume. But the, in Melchizedek lore... There, Melchizedek is timeless, right? In fact, ancient rabbis had this saying, not in the Torah, not in the world. So some ancient rabbis had this kind of interpretive lens that if it wasn't specifically named in the Torah, it did not exist in the real world. And so in the scriptures, since we're not given any genealogy of Melchizedek, they took that to mean that Melchizedek is this timeless figure. 
In other words, no, no parents in Scripture, no parents in the world, right? Now, we know now that this probably isn't the best interpretive kind of tool to use, that if it's not in the Scriptures, it's not in the world. Let me give you an example. Uh, when I was in college, the, not my roommate, but the guy that lived next door to me, uh, he was also a, a religion major. He came to me one day and he said, I think I have figured out uh, that running is sinful. And I said, oh, really? Now, I almost said with a loud resounding amen, because I don't like to run, but I resisted that and said, tell me more about this. Why is running sinful? And he said, well, there's no record of Jesus running in the New Testament. So Jesus didn't do it, must mean that we must not do it. And I said, that's very interesting. Now, did you send an email today? Like, have you ever sent an email? He said, well, yes. And this is like, this is like right when chat rooms were a thing too. Like you could get lost in chat rooms for like decades, right? When they first came out, they were like all the thing. And, and, and my, my, the guy next to me really loved chat rooms. Like the better portion of the day, he was on his computer in chat rooms. And so I just saw an opportunity uh, that the Holy Spirit gave to me. And I said, uh, I said, do you, do, how do you feel about chat rooms and emails? Did G, is there any record of Jesus doing that? Well, no. Do you think then that it might be sinful to do that? And I was just playing the same game that he was playing. And it was a terrible interpretive lens, right? So now we sort of understand that maybe this is not the best interpretive tool to use. But for the ancient, for the ancient rabbis, they had this kind of saying, not in the Torah, not in the world. And so Melchizedek kind of became this timeless figure. And so... What we have then is we have this, this, this lore, this, this homiletical Melchizedek. And so what happens is then the preacher, that is the writer of Hebrews, he's reading the Old Testament one day, and he comes across a guy in Genesis who is a timeless king, an eternal priest, whose name means justice and peace. And the preacher says, that's it. There's Jesus. Right there he is in the Old Testament. Jesus is, Melchizedek is foreshadowing the eternal king and priest of Jesus. I thought for sure I'd get a little more amens and I was trying to like kind of work us up to it, but that's okay. And so I want you to kind of get a feel for this, right? Jesus is king in the line of David. And we talk a lot about the kingship of Christ, the kingdom of God. Like if you've been around Emmaus a little bit, hopefully you at least have a little bit of a handle of kind of what that means, right? So Jesus is a king in the line of David, but we need to add to that. And we need to understand that Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. He's not just a king in the line of David, but he's a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Listen to this. Jesus is the one coming to offer us bread and wine and pronounce a blessing over us as the timeless king and eternal priest. There we go. Jesus is the one who comes to offer to us bread and wine, pronounce a blessing over us as timeless king and eternal priest. Yes and amen. That is the ending of the sermon. But lucky for you, there are, um, there's like, what do they call them on the DVD? Extras? Like, 
special features or whatever those are called. It's been so long since I've watched a DVD, I don't even remember. So, but, but you know how a DVD has like the, the menus of extra stuff, the alternate endings? Here's the alternate ending to the sermon, okay? Here's the alternate ending. I felt like I needed to kind of pack or like unpack what it means to be priest, right? Because as I mentioned, maybe we kind of have some sense of what it means to call Christ king, king over all the nations. There's no national boundaries, but the kingdom of God is open to all that will come by faith, right? We talk a lot about that. But what would it mean to say that Jesus is the great high priest? Um, We don't come from a tradition, the Nazarenes, we don't do a lot with iconography, but I've come to appreciate some iconography, and I've got a couple icons in my office, and I brought uh, today my icon for Jesus the high priest. Um, And we had a nativity icon over here during Advent and Christmastide, and prior to that, for many weeks, we had Jesus the teacher, uh, which feels appropriate, right? Um, That that I stand, my pulpit stands behind an icon of Christ the teacher. But today I thought it was appropriate for Christ the high priest. Uh, that, that, may find, that may come across very like heartwarming to us, uh, but, but let's try to unpack a little bit about what it means to say that Jesus is our high priest. The high priest in the Old Testament had a, primarily a twofold ministry. Uh, by the way, this is like flying at 10,000 feet. Okay, So there's like a whole whole bunch of stuff you could go into with, with the high priest. So let's kind of fly at, at 10,000 feet and just get an overview. But, but the high priest primarily had a twofold ministry. And that is, on the Day of Atonement, that is the one day a year when the high priest would atone for the sins uh, of the community, the high priest did this. On behalf of God, the high priest would face toward humanity and offer them God's presence and God's forgiveness. And so the high priest represents God's loving hand reaching down to humanity. Amen. But there's another part of the high priest, and that is the high priest on behalf of the people faced toward God and presented their offerings of worship. And those offerings of worship represented a covenant response to God. Remember, God had made a covenant with the people uh, through Abraham. And then now through the line of Abraham, this, this, this priestly tribe has come up. Well, there's a way to keep a, a covenant is sort of this binding agreement. Both parties need to do their part. And so God is remaining faithful to the people despite all their unfaithfulness. And there was needed to be a covenant response from humanity to God. And so on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would represent the people and present their offerings to God as a covenant response to God. In other words, the high priest represents humanity's hand reaching up to God. I want you to get this. The high priest represents God's hand reaching down to humanity. And the high priest represents our hand reaching up to God in covenant response to him. Are you with me so far? When we look at the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ, what we see, in fact, is the work of the great high priest on the day of atonement. We see God's loving hand of forgiveness reaching down to us for the forgiveness of sin, but we also see Christ's obedient 
faithful hand reaching up to God on our behalf. <sighs> right? So Christ stands as God's representative to all of humanity. That when we look at the cross, what we see is the tremendous love, grace, mercy, and forgiveness of God. Amen. We're used to that. But what we need to also understand is that Christ stands as humanity's representative to God. And he can do this as the great high priest because he is, in fact, fully God and fully human. Fully God and fully human. It's his, it's his divine nature, his full divine nature, and his full human nature that allow him to faithfully represent God to humanity and humanity to God. And so in becoming our high priest, Christ is perfectly suited to enter into solidarity with us and also provide for us a faithful human response to God. What this means is that in the person of Jesus Christ, God has provided a covenant response to God's self. In the person of Jesus Christ, God has provided a covenant response to God's self, which is what we, this is high theology talk for what we mean when we say, you have been reconciled to God through Christ. You have been reconciled to God through the work of Christ on the Christ, of Christ on the cross, because, because Jesus represents humanity's faithful covenant response to God. Amen. What this means is our only response is one of faith and trust because the work has been completed. God entered into covenant with humanity, but humanity couldn't do the best job of keeping the covenant. We couldn't hold up our part of the agreement. And so what does God do? God seals the covenant on, on one side saying, I will complete your part of the covenant through the person of Jesus Christ so that your only response left is one of faith and trust and worship and thanks be to God. This is good news. This is the path that God has outlined for us to God. This is the bridge that God has built between humanity and God. This is all of God's, that all of the things that we talk about are because of the role of Jesus as the high priest. Does this make sense? I, saw, I heard some murmurings, and I'm going to go ahead and go forward. So Jesus, the faithful one, represents all of humanity and lives in perfect faithfulness before God. Our, this is grace. This is grace. It would not be good news if it was the holy and most high God deserves that you live a spotless life. That wouldn't be good news. That would be a burden of guilt upon under which none of us could survive. The good news is the most holy God has provided a response to God's self in Christ. And so you place your faith in the work that has already been done. And this then frees us for the, for the infilling of the Holy Spirit to in fact empower us for right living. 
right? It gives us a new identity that we can then go about living into, right? This is the good news of Jesus Christ. Okay. So Christ has fully become our high priest so that we can then place our trust in the faithfulness of Christ. Having faith, having faith, let's stop. like tangent. Can I tangent for a little bit? Having faith is not certainty of belief. Having faith is not holding all the correct doctrine. Having faith is placing our trust in the completed work of the faithful one. So in other words, our faith is not in our ability to muster stronger belief our faith is not in our ability to, to figure out all the right doctrine. Our faith is not in our ability to have faith. Our faith is in the faithful one. Our faith is, is essentially a shorthand way of saying we have placed our trust in the one who has already faithfully responded to God in perfect human obedience. Amen. The preacher will later say in the next chapter, Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. <laughs> he, has walked the, he has walked the road. He has walked the path for us on our behalf. All we've got to do is place our trust in him and the completed work. So maybe you are here this morning and you have not yet placed your faith in Christ. I would encourage you to do so by determining in your heart to follow in the way of Jesus and saying a prayer to God, committing to do that. I'm not going to give you the, the certain words or anything like that. You just simply pray to God and commit yourself to following in the way of Jesus. You say, you know what? Jesus has walked the road of faithful human obedience to God. And so I am placing my trust in that. And by doing so, the scripture tells us we become a new creation. We are filled with the Holy Spirit. And then we lean into the spirit that lives inside of us for right and moral living. Amen. Now, there's a good chance that most or majority of you in the room or listening online have already placed your faith in Christ. And so today... Maybe we need to learn to lean into the beautiful truth of the work that Christ has done on our behalf and ask the Spirit to empower us for right living. And just ask for the Spirit to fill our hearts, to fill our lives, to fill our minds for right thinking, because that's important, right? It's not that doctrine or belief or those things aren't important. They're important. And so we ask the Holy Spirit to help us in right thinking, in discernment, and then ultimately to so infill our lives that our way of being in the world will bear witness to the good news of Jesus. For the good news this morning is Christ is timeless king over all the nations. An eternal priest who has faithfully shown us the love of God and responded in obedience to God on our behalf. Amen. So let's all place our faith or our trust in the faithful one. Amen. Amen. Let me pray and then I'll lead us to the Lord's table today. Gracious God, we this morning are humbled by the good news of Jesus. We're humbled by the fact that when our efforts have fallen short,
when our intentions were good, but we didn't live up to them, that these things are not held against us. For Christ has already provided the covenant response of humanity to God. And so, Heavenly Father, today, we respond in thanksgiving for this tremendous grace that has been given to us. And we pray that each and every one of us, wherever we're at in our spiritual journey, would open ourselves up to the work of the Holy Spirit, that we might become new creations. And whether that today, this, this morning, means uh, professing faith or placing our trust in Christ for the very first time or, or recommitting our lives, or whether that means simply like just allowing the Holy Spirit to so infill us that we will live and operate in the world in the way of love. So God, stir in our hearts, be present to us. Teach us, show us, um, convict us when it's necessary um, that we might walk uh, in the right paths and walk in your will and according to your will. And God, we pray now that you would meet us at this table as we gather around the Lord's table to proclaim your death, and the passion in your death and resurrection. May these not May these elements simply not be a time of remembrance, but may they also be a time where your spirit is active among us. Meet us today at your table, we pray. We ask all these things in Jesus' name.